you looking to fine-tune? Whether for your business, your job, your team, or yourself, in each episode, we will be discussing different ideas and opinions using real-world examples to help you see opportunities, innovate, and succeed. Hi, it's Corby Fine, and welcome to Fine Tune. So Erica, welcome to the podcast today. I am I'm so excited personally to have you on. Uh, I was telling a few people in my network that I was going to be spending some time with you and doing this interview, and I would be absolutely lying to you if I didn't say that there were a very large number of my male friends who said, oh my God, I am so jealous. I had the biggest crush on her when she used to be on television. So um, I'm sure you get that a lot walking down the street, but welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much, Corby. And you know what's interesting about that? That is a blessing and a curse in my life because when you run a business and historically someone has had a crush on you when they were 17 or 18, I think it's really hard for people to look at me as a serious business person, as an innovator, as an entrepreneur, when all they can think of is, oh my God, it's Erica M. from Much Music. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could say I understood that problem. Uh, for me, for me, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, there's that person with a large LinkedIn following. I could take advantage of that. So. Uh, yes. Well, that's, a, that's another conversation we could have because I do have that as well. Now, modern time, where I have a very large following of people parents and uh, influencers. And so brands come to me all the time to try and take advantage of that. And my answer always is, what's your budget? <laughs> so why don't you start there? Why don't we talk a little bit about what you are currently up to and uh, maybe how you got there, given you know people on the street talking about having had a crush on you, which means obviously you used to be in some sort of limelight and now you're in a different limelight where you know brands and advertisers and companies are seeking you out. I guess I've always been an influencer in the true sense of the word. I've always had a lot of influence on um, a generation, starting with the people at much music. I always told the truth. I always spoke from my heart and a lot of people came to trust me. Uh, as well as having a crush on me. But I think part of why people had a crush on me is because I was sort of the Marianne, if you want to talk uh, Gillian's Island. I was the Marianne of much music. I was down to earth and I had something interesting to say. People found me attractive, which was also a side benefit. But um, I was well-researched and I spoke to the bands and asked questions that I felt everyone wanted to know. Fast forward to when I had a different life. I was married and I had children and I was drowning and I was not prepared for motherhood. I don't think many people are. And I found that most people dismissed mothers. We were invisible and not treated with respect. And also I felt that everybody was asking me, how are your kids? Nobody was checking in on me. I'm the main caregiver, and I was struggling. I was drowning. I was not mentally well. But everybody was more concerned about the well-being of my children. And I thought, why is no one paying attention to the mothers? And I had an opportunity to speak to some producers, uh, television producers, and I pitched them the idea for a TV show called Yummy Mummy, 
which was uh, conceptually a show that spoke to the ups and downs, the roller coaster ride of modern motherhood. So it wasn't a show about parenting, it was a show about surviving motherhood. Uh, the show was bought by Life Network and Discovery Health. It was produced and then uh, it was syndicated around the world. And it's still available on Amazon Prime for 99 cents an episode. So that, sh- that show catapulted me into the world of creating content for parents. And when the show was canceled eventually by uh, Life Network, I thought I have a burning desire to connect with moms and to remind women that we are more than somebody's moms and that it's so essential to take care of ourselves. Now, remember, this was 14 years ago. And 14 years ago, there wasn't really any safe space for moms to talk about the isolation and the stress and the guilt. So I started this little tiny website called Yummy Mummy Club. In fact, it wasn't even a a separate website. It was under ericam.com. I added a little extra line in there and was on fire. And I created 300 pages of content by myself on my little tiny Erica M website. And the people who were hosting that website kicked me off because I started to generate too much traffic. And that's when I knew I had something. And that's when I launched yummymummyclub.ca back in 2007. Wow. Well, 300 pages of content on Fiverr.com today, you would be uh, sought after by many other organizations trying to figure out the content game. But something you said was interesting to me. You said you weren't prepared for motherhood, and yet you found a way to make a transition to make that the focus of your your career, your your earning potential. How did you how did you do that? How do you take something that you you know really just are thrown into being becoming a parent, becoming a mother, and find the opportunity in that to actually make that you know your day to day operation, what you're doing every day to make a living? What you said, the word opportunity is my superpower, I guess. I am an unabashed opportunist. I look for opportunity everywhere. And I combine that with my other skill, which is I'm a great problem solver. That's what leads to all my innovation, really, is I see a problem which I have to solve. Now, in this case, the problem was I was personally, emotionally drowning. I was crying out for community. And I saw a problem in the way that women were being represented and spoken to in the media. And I had to do something about it. So I think the way that I am built is that I go into overdrive and I just work my ass off. I don't look up. I just look down. My poor children are (laughs) become second-class citizens in my home. And I just do the work. And I think anyone who is really successful in life just does the work because nothing is handed to you. No one helped me. Absolutely no one helped me. Oh, I would say actually my husband helped me because he he didn't question the fact that I was so absorbed in my work and my vision and my mandate. He He took on 50% of the domestic chores, which is amazing. And, uh, and I created something from nothing. No, that's amazing. In, in becoming an entrepreneur, in starting this digital media business, 
you've mentioned a number of your uh, superpowers, being a disruptor, being a creator, solving problems, being perpetually opportunistic. When you think about all of those things, and there's other people that might come to you for advice or, or people listening to this, to this episode, which of those things really stands out to you as something that if you, you had to give advice to someone, you'd say, don't ever forget that one skill, that innate thing within you, your own superpower, because it's helped you be as successful as you, you've been yourself? Well, the first thing is you have to understand what the problem is that you're trying to solve, and you have to laser focus on that. And then, sadly, you have to be committed to incredibly long hours of hard work. You also need to start listening to everyone around you and researching before you really build something you have to understand is this viable. So talking to people who you trust, who you respect, and listening, I think, is such an important uh, component of of building anything is to spotting the potential pitfalls before they happen. So in fact, I have thought about it and I thought about like the five things that I listen to that have been incredibly helpful as I've transitioned my little website into one of the largest in the country and now a digital media agency. So I think the first thing is that I listen to my staff my staff, I have the utmost respect for the people that I work with because without them, I would be nothing. I have found people who have skills that I don't have. They do so much of the hard work and they all actually are in the weeds. So they can tell me if something is broken or if they think there could be a better way of doing something. I always listen, listen to them and defer to them because that's why I picked them because they're smarter than me. I also listen to my customers, my clients. In this case, I have two different ones. I listen to the moms, the parents who read my content. If they don't like something, I listen and try and understand what is it that we did wrong here. And if they like something, I say, look, people like this. Let's do more of this. Conversely, I listen to my clients very carefully because if they have a bad experience with my agency, the client isn't wrong. There's something that my agency didn't do well, and we need to solve that in order to make sure that every client's experience is fantastic. Because, you know, there are many other people where my clients can go, both my readers and the people who pay the bills. Both of them can find other providers. So I need to listen to them and be there for them. I also listen to my competitors because there are a lot of people who do what it is that I do in some way. And a lot of them are trying to do innovative things. Well, I watch carefully and I see all the mistakes that they make. And I say, okay, let's try that, but don't do it that way because we just watched these people do it and it failed. So I fully take advantage of my, call them frenemies or my competitors. A new thing that I learned through business was that I always listen to the numbers. I didn't do that at the beginning because I'm not very good at numbers. I'm an ex-TV host who is hardworking and entrepreneur, but I don't have an MBA. I don't understand how to read a spreadsheet. I don't understand profit and loss. I do now, but I didn't then. And so I hired really smart people 
not too long ago. So it took me a long time because what happened was I became frozen. I didn't know if I can hire new people. I didn't know if I can invest in new research because I didn't understand the numbers properly. So if you're going to go into business, you need to ensure that you really understand the numbers. And finally, I really believe that you need to listen to your heart. I used to say your gut, but I've since learned that gut is tied into stress and people make decisions from their gut based on fear. And that's not the right way to make decisions. You want to make decisions by listening to your heart. Meaning, is this in line with my values? Does this line up with what's important to me in my life? Am I proud of this? Can I show this to my kids? Would my mom think this is a good idea? Would my clients respect me for doing this? And by listening to those five things, I think, will set you on the right path. I think I have my next blog post in what you just said. That was so incredibly inspirational. And and I'm going to add something because, you know, I've worked in large organizations, I've worked in small organizations. And one of the things that people often forget to do that goes a little bit beyond listening is before you can listen, often you actually need to ask. And often we get so tied up in thinking about models and analytics and data and the science is going to prove itself out. And yet, with all the time we spend trying to figure out how to build a predictive model that's going to determine whether someone's going to like that article or not, why don't we just ask the customer, ask the reader, ask the employee, and putting those two things together, a little bit of the art and a little bit of the science, but really from your perspective, knowing where to focus that effort against your staff or your employees, your your customers, your frenemy competitors, the numbers themselves, and and ultimately your own passion and your heart and what drives you. That that's uh, you know that's really something that I think people can take away. So so thank you for sharing that. Well, I think it's really important to learn to ask in. As an entrepreneur, as a business owner, that actually is the number one skill. You have to learn to ask. And I think a lot of people are afraid to ask. That's, that was what my mom taught me from a very young age. It's how I got a job working at a radio station when I was 17 years old. It's every single success that I've had in life is directly related to me asking for something. And I feel like people are afraid to ask because their feelings will get hurt. It means I'm not good enough. And oftentimes, if you ask someone for something and they say no, you walk away with your tail between your legs because you failed. The way that I look at it is when someone says no to you, it's an amazing opportunity to say why. And not in a combative way, but to learn. Why was this offer not resonating with you? Is there something wrong with the way that I'm presenting it? Do you not understand what this is? And perhaps you'll learn that the person is in fact interested in what you just offered, but the time isn't right, or they don't have the dollars right now. Or if you begin that conversation and that relationship building by asking, hey, why not? They'll remember you because you've built a relationship. And I believe that. All business is relationship. One of the two things I remember vividly that my grandmother would always say is you don't get if you don't ask. And the get doesn't necessarily need to mean something tangible or a value in terms of the traditional sense. It could simply be an opportunity to have a conversation. It could mean advice. 
Um, if I didn't ask, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation together. And and that brings up the notion that you just talked about, which is though people are often afraid of failure and often the act of asking could lead to a negative outcome. No, I don't have time. I'm not interested. Um, what's the value in it for me? And so when I think about failure and I think about all of the things that you have gone through in your career, these transitions, these entrepreneurial endeavors, um, becoming a mom, which in and of itself is incredibly uh, scary and, and, and full of the unknown. Is there anything that stands out to you as one of those pivotal moments that you look back and you say, wow, I can't believe in the face of all of the risk, of all of the challenge, of all of the, the fear that I had at that moment, what was one of those key pivotal moments that stands out and, and how did you get through uh, one of those really risky and, and challenging moments? I feel like running a business is one long form of risky and challenging, to be honest. There aren't really specific, sharp moments of life or death. However, there are eras in the company's history, since I've been doing this for 14 years, that I remember as being super challenging. Working in the world of digital media and digital publishing, it's a constant game of whack-a-mole because the industry is shifting day to day. New technologies, new limitations put on pl by platforms, platforms changing, you don't own the platforms, um, your readers uh, suddenly being attracted to a different property that offers something different. I mean, you're in a constant state of high anxiety. And I do remember there was a period around probably six years ago where my business model that I had invented for YMC just wouldn't work anymore. The business model that I invented back in the day was I invited really spectacular women with unique skills. So a mom who is a doctor, a pediatrician, or a mom who owns her own, um, uh, who is a mechanic or a car mechanic, or a woman who is a mom who is a, a party planner. Um, so 50 different women, each with a unique niche. And they all had a place on YMC. They all had their little home. They had a blog within my large platform. It was like a tapestry of voices. And I didn't pay them to write per se. What I did is I offered them CPM share. So the way I did is I rebuilt the website. So each of the blogs had their own code and they could all go back into Google Analytics and see their numbers. And I said, listen, as well as your blogs do, so you will get paid. And every month I will pay you based on a $10 CPM. Well, first of all, that $10 CPM was insane because as you know, CPMs plummeted. So I had to change it. I said, guys, you know, I'm only making now a $10 CPM. So I'm going to give everybody a $5 CPM, but we're going to keep our numbers up and we're going to promote all of your stuff and we're going to continue to grow. And then what happened was the proliferation of, of uh, blogs. So suddenly anyone and everybody can start their own WordPress site. And so people started to go, hmm, I don't think I'm going to save my best stuff for YMC. I'm going to continue to write for YMC and hedge my bet with my own personal blog, but I'm going to put my really good stuff on my personal blog. And so the content on YMC started to suffer. And also CPM started to plummet. 
I was like, this is not working for me. And so we completely changed the way the business was being run. We laid everybody off in terms of their own blog. And that was shitty because I have personal relationships with every single one of those people. I only pick people I like. And so that was hard. However, we started to pay people per article. So we completely changed our editorial. We started to post considerably less content, but better content. We became more in control of the content and we paid out content differently. So um, it, uh, I don't know if it's better, but in this, in this era, it's what works for me now. So in a recent article I was reading that you posted on your website, you talked pretty much to, to parents about the importance of teaching their kids so many of the basic things in life. And you put it in a frame of obviously the current situation of being at home through this, this COVID-19 experience. And you talked about cooking and laundry, about understanding their own feelings and emotions. You went even further and started to discuss the importance of things like teaching them about leadership, about being entrepreneurial, uh, that learning is fun, you know, really core fundamental things. And being feminists. And, and being feminists. And one of the things that I thought about was when you think about that one piece of advice or that list of pieces of advice that aren't for parents to their children, but are from you as an entrepreneur to other entrepreneurs, what would that list look like if you if you had to make it? And I know we've talked about a lot of terms, but maybe as as the key takeaway uh, for other people listening who are at that pivotal moment of deciding, do I do I go for it? Do I take advantage of my own um, my own ideas right now? What would that list look like if you were rewriting that that post for the entrepreneur uh, audience versus just the, the the parent audience? Well, that would be next my next blog post, right? <laughs> um, I think the first thing would be don't be afraid to ask. So when you find yourself, oh, thinking, oh, so-and-so wouldn't want to talk to me, or they'll probably just say no anyway, or I wouldn't get that loan anyway, I challenge you to do it anyway. And this is the next piece of advice, which is don't take no personally. This is such a huge piece of why I believe I've been successful, because trust me, Corby, the number of times people have said no to me in words that are not always that kind. Um, I, I can't even begin to tell you, but I'm like a little bulldog and I get slapped down and I pick myself up and I say, fuck it. <laughs> I really do say that. And I put on my bold face and I knock on someone else's door and someone else will say, not interested, go away. You used to be a VJ. And one door that I knock on says yes. And all you need is one yes. You'll find your yes, but you need to be persistent. And you need to remember that in business, it's not personal. If someone doesn't like your idea, it could be because they really don't like your idea. It's not because they don't like you. And that means that you need to understand why that person, like we talked before, why that person doesn't like your idea, is not ready for that idea, and to use it as an opportunity to start building a relationship. Because every one of my successes in life is because I doubled down on relationships and built trust and um, 
built a mutually beneficial situation in every single thing that I do, a win-win-win situation. I mean, even in my digital marketing, Corby, when we work with our clients and I find out what is your objective with parents, with your brand, what do you want to happen in this campaign? I say to them, the most important thing is how will this campaign land on my readers? Because if my readers don't like this, if they feel like it's too salesy, they'll tune out. So I lose because my readers don't like it. My readers lose because they have bad content. And you, my client, lose the biggest because it's not going to be successful. So I always say, we have a relationship with our audience that we are all leveraging. Moms need to know about products. They're okay with that. Treat them with respect. Give them something special. And then it's a win for client, a win for consumer, and ultimately a win for me because I've made everybody happy. And I think in business, that's the way you need to look at it. Not as a win for you first, but as a win for your customers. And then you win. This is some really great advice from Erica M. Who Not bad for a VJ, huh? Who herself has turned herself from a VJ into a really successful and, and as I'm finding through this conversation, inspiring, successful entrepreneur. Uh, some of the key things that I know I've heard today, um, f- five things or, or groups to listen to, your staff, your customers, your competitors, the numbers, and your heart. Uh, <clears throat> don't take no personally, which I think is really hard for people to get over, but knowing the possibility on the outcome uh, is worth taking that chance. And and a line that you just said, which I've I've never really heard before, find your yes. Find your yes by consistently being persistent, not taking no in that personal sense. A former boss of mine once told me, he said, you don't need everybody to like you, but you want everybody to respect you. Wow. Yes. Yeah, that line has stuck with me. And I, and I think there's a lot of sort of correlation to, to the way you've just described things. So I want to just ask you a couple of fun questions because your life has had so many different experiences. And I want to take it from the perspective of both your relationship with moms nationally and internationally as as a uh, successful entrepreneur and also as a former VJ within a really fun, uh, much music environment. So the first question, if you're ready to go. I'm ready. What is the absolute best tip that you've ever given to parents that people have like called you and said, oh my God, thank you for that? Okay. there's. I'm going to give you two answers. Number one, I didn't give most of the tips. What I, I'm a facilitator. I'm an enabler. So I built a platform where I have so many women who are giving tips to other moms. So in, in many ways, I can't take a responsibility for a lot of that. However, I did respond to a tweet five years ago from a woman who is a psychologist in Halifax. And she said, I have an idea. Will you talk to me? Sure. I'm an opportunist. Of course. Weird person on Twitter who's DMing me. Well, it turns out this woman actually flew to Toronto to meet with me. She's a mom of four, but she under she underplayed herself. She wasn't just a psychologist. She is a leading research, researcher in pediatric pain. 
And she came to me with a proposal to do a government grant on something called knowledge mobilization, which I can describe to you, Corby, as marketing knowledge in a creative and compelling way. Scientists are really bad at it. And what happens is there's a 17-year gap from the time a researcher does research, health research, till the time it actually trickles down to the end user, to consumers, in this case, parents. What Dr. Chambers wanted to do was to shrink that gap using social media. And she said to me, I see what you do with brands like Dove, the stories that you tell about the brand, integrating the brand. Can you do that for pain? I said, I totally can do it. I get it. What I didn't know is that she had reached out to three other parent properties who all turned her down. But I'm like, let's do it. This is cool. So we actually put a government grant together and we got it for knowledge mobilization. And we worked together, my team of content creators and digital marketers, working with pediatric pain researchers and scientists for a year to create a knowledge mobilization campaign to help disseminate information, evidence-based information about pain to parents. So we told stories about parents who had experienced really uh, dealing with chronic pain with their children, how they dealt with it, using science scientists to vet the information. We created four videos, some of them funny. One of them was a mom talking about how she used her bikini wax to teach her child about pain management. And that campaign went off the charts. The hashtag was, it doesn't have to hurt. That hashtag still continues today. And it essentially has changed the way scientists are using social media and knowledge mobilization. In fact, we were um, given a shout out in the Senate by Senator Colin Deacon for the work that we were doing in knowledge mobilization. We've won awards for it, et cetera. Um, so if you're asking me what's the best tip that I gave, I think it was that campaign teaching parents to be empowered to treat their children's pain in a variety of interesting ways. And the best advice for the entrepreneur is to never ignore that one tweet that might lead to something as successful as that. Well, that's just it. It's like, be open to the opportunities because you never know. And don't judge people. You just never know the magic, the power that some person who hasn't yet had the opportunity to fulfill their, uh, their uh, in Christine's case, their destiny. She's now, by the way, the chief science officer at CIHR. Hmm. And that was based on the work that we did. That's amazing. And so flip it. What's the, what's the one thing you could pull back? What's the worst piece of advice you've ever given that parent network? Oh, I take zero responsibility, man. I just built the platform. <laughs> uh, I'll leave <laughs> no, but, it at that. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I think all advice can be helpful or harmful depending on the situation that you have, right? So we never give bad advice. We give advice from the heart and you either choose to accept it or ignore it if it doesn't resonate with you. And so now go back to your, your old VJ days. What was the best or most fun interview that you've ever conducted? Oh, I'm totally throwing that back to you. Corby, 
Is there one that sticks out? Look, I've totally put you on the on the hot seat, but is there one that you even remember? And I don't care if you don't, but is there is there an interview or a moment that you remember from Much Music in your formative years um, that I conducted back at Much Music, even something from when you were working at Sony that um, that resonated with you? And then I'll tell you what mine was. I have a vision, and I have not done any research on this because you just threw that on me. Uh I I have a vision. I can sort of see you standing with Billy Idol for some reason. And and I'm not sure if it's because I stalked him in a Florida mall about 15 (laughs) years ago as he carried a, a Bloomingdale's brown bag. Um, truth, uh, it was at the Aventura Mall and he was walking through and there were all kinds of people following and I became one of those people. But I have this vision of you like definitely shorter than him and him definitely taller than you standing there having a conversation. And I don't know if that was real or in my head. I think that was in your head. Um, then I'll but, go with that one. <laughs> but I did interview Sting and he looks a little bit like Billy Idol. Yeah, he does. So that could have been it. But my favorite interview, I think, is uh, the one that I did with Kurt Cobain in Uh, Seattle, uh, where I was asked to interview him for his album In Utero. And it just so happened it was one of the last interviews he conducted before he took his own life. And a crazy thing happened with that interview. So the way you do interviews when you're out in the field is that the way much music would do it is we did it on the cheap, which is one person. So a host goes out with one person, which is a cameraman, lighting, audio, uh, travel companion person. So me and the one, I believe his name was uh, Dave Hurlbut, uh, went to Seattle together and we set up a shot in, in a hotel in Seattle. So my plan was and always is to humanize myself to a band so that they don't see me as just another interview. They see me as a person. So when he walked into the hotel room, because he had to go from hotel room to hotel room to interview because he was on a junket. So the first thing I said to him is, hi, my name's Erica. Do you want to do the interview in the bed or on the balcony? And he had this look of shock and fear and because he's quite shy. And he said, uh, on the balcony. I was like, great, we'll set it up. So we threw out some uh, lights and the camera outside. And the way these interviews work is the cameraman, because there's only one, shoots from over my shoulder. So you never see me in the interview. You only see the person who's being interviewed. So I peppered him with a variety of questions, many of them quite personal, again, trying to humanize the conversation and not ask all the same questions. And then what happens is the star, the rock star leaves and myself, the cameraman and I fake the re-asks where you get to re-ask the questions in a more dignified way. Because when you ask the questions, they're, you're kind of playful and you're trying to loosen up the person and trying to get them to speak. Well, someone stole the raw tape of me asking all the questions. And so I'm quite goofy in a lot of those questions. The final interview, the edited one, I look fantastic, but it was someone stole that tape and they posted it on YouTube. And now it's it's been viewed millions and millions of times. You never see my face, God damn it. 
but people always say, who's that person who's asking amazing questions? And Canadians usually go, and I think that's Erica M. But it, it really, uh, many people say it was the best interview they've ever seen with him because his humanity and his vulnerability came out. And he was able to talk about things that he didn't usually talk about. To me, that's a successful interview. That's an amazing memory. I advise everybody to go watch that on YouTube because I know it's there. And it's you know incredibly inspirational to have had this time to talk to you today. Eric M., a icon in Canada, a successful entrepreneur, uh, someone who's been in the public eye, both on mass across the country from a, a music fan and a general sort of pop culture fan's perspective, a leader and a visionary among among moms and parents and, and people making that transition to a different part of their life. You um, have given my listeners some incredible advice today. And I just want to want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, wish you all the success in your next endeavors. And uh, and again, thank you for everything you've done for me and my listeners today. My pleasure. It was a great interview. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Erica. You've been listening to Fine Tune. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with me on Twitter at CFine, through LinkedIn at CorbyFine, or visit my website, CorbyFine.com. Fine Tune is produced by me, Corby Fine. Thanks for listening.